everyone, it's Sarah Edwards here and welcome to December 2022's Emergency Medicine Journal Podcast of the Month. It is holiday season and I'm joined today by... Hello, it's Rick Boddy and yeah, I've got my virtual Santa hat on. Yeah, I've got mine on and we're drinking eggnog and it's snowing outside, if only it were true. But um, welcome to the podcast and we've got again a bit of a smattering of papers to talk about from authors all over the world, which is incredible. Um, But I'm going to kick off with Rick and he's got a couple of papers to talk about. Yeah, so we're going to start off with a really deep dive into vital signs. So we have a really nice paper here from the Netherlands, from Veldhoven, where a group of authors led by Bart Kandel have had a look at a large database of patients who attended the emergency department to work out how predictive vital signs are of inpatient mortality. But not just that, because we we know that there's a predictive value of uh, vital signs. They did a really deep dive to have a look at, actually, what are the cutoffs that we might use best to decide whether someone's going to die in the hospital? Or does it matter what age the patient is? Does that affect how predictive the vital signs are? So they did an observational multi-centre cohort study at several emergency departments in the Netherlands. They included everyone who was an adult who attended the ED in three years. Now, they're quite small EDs. They had um, annual censuses of about 25,000 to 30,000 patients each year. So the total sample size in this study was just over 100,000 patients, and 2.3% of the patients died. So they had a look at uh, the blood pressure, the respiratory rate, the oxygen saturations, the temperature, um, and the heart rate, and they, they looked at the adjusted odds ratios for inpatient mortality with different categories. Now, the findings were quite interesting, if you're into vital signs. Um, there were some things that you'd expect. So if your systolic blood pressure goes down, then you're more likely to die. But the really interesting thing was to to look at the pattern of that. So it was a gradual thing. The lower your systolic blood pressure, the more likely you were to die in hospital. There didn't seem to be a cutoff below which you could say, actually, mortality suddenly goes up. At any cutoff, it didn't matter. There was a gradual increase in mortality with decreasing systolic blood pressure. And the same went for um, oxygen saturation as well. As you know, The lower your oxygen saturation got, the more likely you were to die in the hospital. They had a look at that with age categories too. And when I looked at that, I thought, well, actually, what we're seeing is that these vital signs predict inpatient mortality regardless of your age. The authors pointed out that the absolute mortality was the greatest for the older patients in the highest risk groups with the lowest systolic blood pressure or the lowest oxygen saturation. But you can also see that in young people, a lower oxygen saturation was significantly predictive. So the odds ratio, adjusted odds ratio, I should say, for an oxygen saturation of below 80 was 11.1 in the youngest patient group, 18 to 65 years. So it's a really big step up in mortality and the same for systolic blood pressure. When you have a look at other uh, parameters, the relationships were a little bit different. So for diastolic blood pressure, the ones with a really high diastolic blood pressure had a worse mortality, and then it kind of, the mortality rate sort of comes down. And then again, as your diastolic blood pressure gets lower, your mortality rate goes up again. So it's a sort of U-shaped relationship. Interestingly, for mean arterial pressure, the MAP, 
they found that a cutoff of 70 seems to be predictive. So there, a cutoff seemed to be useful where the mortality rate jumped up. And the same was true for respiratory rates. So a respiratory rate of 22 seems to be the sweet spot in this cohort above which your mortality seemed to increase. Temperature was the other interesting one. So you might think that, again, there'd be a U-shaped relationship. A really high temperature gives you a much higher mortality rate and a really low temperature does. And that's not quite what they found. Uh, They found that, in fact, if you have a really high temperature above 40, your mortality rate was lower than expected. So we adjusted odds ratio of 0.49 in in all of the cohort. And it didn't matter what age group you belonged to, that relationship was there. But the mortality rate started to increase when you got hypothermic. So you can see in the groups that they stratified into that the, the, the odds ratio jumps up when you get to a category of 31 to 34 degrees, and then it went up thereafter. But in fact, a single cutoff of below 35.5 seemed to be the sweet spot. So again, that's telling us that those patients had a higher mortality. So just be aware of that. Hypothermia, which uh, as in a temperature below 35.5 in this study, seemed to be predictive of mortality. Um, MAP of less than 70, respiratory rate over 22, but the systolic blood pressure and the oxygen saturations should be treated as continuous variables. The, The lower you go, the higher the mortality rate. So that's it, a deep dive into understanding how vital signs predict inpatient mortality. Wow, Rick. I mean, the one that stuns me is the temperature one, actually. I think that's quite interesting because there's always that perception that, you know, uh, if the patient's got a high, higher temperature that, you know, the mortality must be associated with it. But actually, it's really interesting that it isn't here. And I guess that sort of mirrors what we probably know in the pediatric data, don't we? That actually the, the number of the temperature when you're over sort of three or six months it, is almost irrelevant. It's how the patient is in the context of everything else. Yeah, that's right. And in, here we're looking at adults and we're seeing yeah. that same thing. So maybe adults are just uh, big children. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And again, it's interesting that, you know, the hypothermia, so cold, is much more worrisome. And I guess, you know, if I reflect on some of the really sick patients I've seen who have sepsis, I don't know about you, but actually the cold ones actually, I think, often did do a lot worse. And that probably mirrors what we're seeing here in the data. Absolutely true. And, you know, we often think about that in the old patients. We know that they don't mount a fever. So we, uh, I guess people are fairly familiar with the need to look out for hypothermia in the older patients as a sign of serious pathology. But here we see that relationship preserved across the age groups as well. So a really important learning point for us is don't underestimate how important hypothermia in the ED is with your sick patient. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you've got a paper of another sort of similar theme, haven't you, Rick? So we're sticking with the vital signs theme. <laughs> and this time we're going to look at early warning scores. We've done a lot on early warning scores in the journal recently, actually. So there's been some quite interesting studies. This time, what we're going to look at is whether early warning scores are any better than our clinical judgment by itself. And I think that's a very important question. We've covered a lot of studies that have compared different early warning scores. Now we're going to see, is it ever, is it actually better than a doctor or a nurse's intuition for how sick the patient is? So here we've got a systematic review, again from the Netherlands, this time from Amsterdam, led by Lars Veldhuis. Uh, and they've done a systematic review. So they've done they followed the textbook of how you do a systematic review. They've registered their protocol in the Prospero database. They've looked at Medline. They've looked at Embase. They've searched the Cochrane database. Two people have done that independently. They've uh, shortlisted all of the papers. 
They've then had two people extract all of the data. They've hand-searched references as well. They've assessed the bias and applicability of the studies using a modified QuadAS2 tool, which is used for diagnostic studies. And then they pulled the data. So they followed the methodological textbook. Check. Very good. Having assured ourselves this is a pretty good uh, systematic review, we then think, well, okay, how have they pulled the data? Unfortunately, we couldn't bring them together into a meta-analysis. So you can't, in this study, sort of get all of the data and put it together to get yourself one odd ratio or whatever, uh, because the, the studies were just too heterogeneous. So what they've done is a narrative synthesis where they, they told us the story of what the data show. They found six studies, and they included 6,419 participants. All of those studies included patients in the ED who had an early warning score, but also had the clinical judgment of a doctor or nurse in the ED recorded. And they were studying outcomes that were quite diverse, the need for ICU admission, uh, mortality, deterioration, severe adverse events. And they're going to see which of these two approaches, early warning score or clinical judgment, is better. So it's quite interesting. When we look at predicting ICU admission, we can see that clinical judgment was better than early warning scores. And that's an interesting finding. I'm kind of not surprised because there's a little bit of what I would call referral bias in there. In that, If your clinical judgment says, I think this patient needs to go to ICU, then you're going to refer them to ICU. And if someone's been referred to ICU, then they're more likely to be admitted to ICU, whereas the early warning score isn't used in that way. So I'm kind of not surprised that clinical judgment outperformed early warning scores on that one. For everything else, the relationship wasn't as clear. So the diagnostic accuracy of clinical judgment was very similar to early warning scores when it came to predicting severe adverse events, when it came to predicting mortality, and to some extent, when it came to predicting uh, clinical deterioration or multi-organ failure, there was only one study that actually looked at multi-organ failure, and they looked at one score, the Denver ED trauma organ failure score. And actually, it seemed a little bit better than clinical judgment, but the confidence intervals are, are fairly wide, so you can't really draw that conclusion. So the bottom line here, really, is that clinical judgment by itself is at least as good as an early warning score for predicting each of these outcomes. It may be slightly better than early warning scores for predicting the need for ICU admission, but recognising the caveat that I just talked about. So what does that mean? Uh, does it mean that we've killed early warning scores? I'm not sure. I mean, I think it, it's a really important message that you don't just lift the early warning score off the shelf and say, ah, this patient's scoring a six, I need to refer them to ICU they should be used alongside your clinical judgment would be my take-home message. Uh, you wouldn't ever bin the information in your early warning score, but you should use it to inform your clinical judgment. That would be my take-home. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think, again, it goes back to that adage about, you know, it's the patient behind the numbers. So it's like, you know, you should never interpret an ECG without context. So early warning score is, is great, but a, a, a single early warning score isn't helpful it's a series and it's a pattern and, you know, it's, it's, it's the patterns that you're looking for. And I think you're right. I think it's interesting that you say that, um, oh, actually, if you think they're going to go to ITU, you're, you're probably going to try really hard to get them to intensive care. But I think you're right. I think the key thing here is, is that actually your clinical gestalt 
does have some impact and it's not just about the early warning score and I guess it's context isn't it and again it's that you know when you're referring when you're trying to request an image um, say you want a CT for whatever reason and actually the radiologist the other side often don't have the patient in front of them and sometimes you wonder you know why are they rejecting my CT and it's because actually they can't see the patient in front of you so by that adage you know the early warning score is great but it doesn't give you those sort of that experience, that feeling of actually this patient doesn't justify the numbers I've got in front of me. So I'm not surprised. I won't be ditching the early warning school because I think it's really useful for lots of lots of reasons. And I'm sure you won't be either. Um, but I think it's really interesting to find uh, that gestalt can be useful. Yeah, 100 percent. It's reassuring that our judgment is pretty good. And I am sure that when people design tools like early warning scores, they never intended for them to be used as standalone numbers without a doctor operating them. And uh, this lends evidence to that. We should always use them in context, given the clinical context. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to move slightly differently, but sort of on diagnostics. And this um, paper that I'm going to talk about firstly is uh, the diagnostic accuracy of pragmatic ultrasound-based approach to adult appendicitis within the emergency department. And this is by our Swiss colleagues, again, going very, um, you know, around the globe, um, by uh, Le Mans, so Beat Le Mans et al., and this paper did a retrospective analysis looking at patients who had appendicitis presenting over a period of time within an emergency department and wanted to see if how accurate the ultrasound was um, in diagnosing it. And what was really good about this paper and, and what was really interesting was that actually the ultrasonographers were not all radiographers, um, as in, you know, they weren't sonographers and radiologists. Um, half of them were um, ED, so emergency physicians, and the other half were radio from a radiology background. So what did they do? So they had uh, 508 patients, and about 308 of those had conclusive ultrasound um, found appendicitis. Um, with um, What they found was that the sensitivity for appendicitis um, on... Um, ultrasound was around 95% confidence interval is around sort of 81 to 94% with specificity around 93%. So reasonably good sensitivity and specificity. And when looking at sort of comparing emergency physicians and radiologists, again, didn't really change a huge amount. Um, radiologists were slightly more accurate with sensitivity and specificity, but overall it was sort of similarly throughout. The other patients that were included in the study, around 200 of them ended up having an inconclusive scan and then went on to further imaging. Um, and about um, sort of 30% of those ultimately ended up having appendicitis. And um, within this study, how they were using, you know, determining the gold standard was either if they had a subsequently went on to have a CT or they went on to have their operation. And that's what they were using as a, to determine if they... Um, had appendicitis. I think what's really interesting about this study is that there potentially could be some utility for us learning about um, and learning how to do ultrasound in the context of appendicitis within the emergency department. It's clear to see that actually emergency physicians don't do much worse than radiologists or sonographers that are trained in this and that could be quite useful. 
And in this adult group of patients, you know, there was a reasonable sort of, you know, pickup rate about, you know, 60%. So about two thirds, you could say, yes, they've definitely got appendicitis. And so, yeah, what do you think, Rick? One of the things that you often notice when we've got a, a study looking at diagnostic accuracy of ultrasound is that they they tend to use enthusiasts to do the scans. And one of the questions I always have those studies is, yeah, but how does that apply to me or the registrars in my department who aren't quite as experienced and enthusiastic about ultrasound and might not be as good as these fantastic enthusiasts? One of the things about this study is that they did include inexperienced ED sonographers. And I really liked the subgroup analysis where they looked at uh, what they called inexperienced ED sonographers. And uh, incredibly, among 81 scans in total, the sensitivity for appendicitis was 87.5% in that group, which is not that different to radiologists or experienced ED physicians. The specificity was similar too at 91%. So I found this really useful, actually. Uh, I often come away a little bit sceptical of some of these ultrasound papers. But in this case, I felt quite impressed. Obviously, a sensitivity of 87, 90% isn't going to completely rule out appendicitis for your patients, but it's going to make it a lot less likely. And just like we talked about with early warning scores, you wouldn't use the ultrasound scan findings as the only reason to make a given clinical decision. You wouldn't rule out just because the ultrasound is negative. You've got to integrate it with other findings. So I thought this was quite promising. It's a potentially a useful tool in our diagnostic armory in the emergency department. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess one thing to note with this paper, actually, this was done between 2012 and 2014. So we're nearly sort of eight to 10 years further on. And, and um, ultrasound technology has probably improved as well. So it may be that actually further work is needed by this group or others to look at that. I think it would be hugely helpful. What isn't in this group, um, which is a shame really. So these most of the average age for these patients was in their 30s. But actually, I'm increasingly seeing quite a substantial number of patients who are in their 60s, 70s and 80s presenting with appendicitis. So it would be really interesting to sort of, you know, see, is there a difference between the age spans, you know, in adulthoods and about the accuracy of diagnosing appendicitis with, with ultrasound? Absolutely. But I mean, this really does justify doing further research in this area because it does look pretty promising to me. Uh, and I'm not an ultrasound enthusiast, I have to have to admit, simply because I'm just not that not that fantastic with my skills. But here I've got a reason to, 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 to believe that I should improve those skills for appendicitis. Uh, moving on from that, Sarah, I, I think we, you've taken a look at a, a paper in paediatrics looking at forearm fractures. One of the controversial things, how do we uh, appropriately anaesthetize a child who's going to have a forearm fracture manipulated? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a um, uh, by our uh, colleagues in Singapore, a, a systematic review of the effects of different anesthetic modes for closed reduction of pediatric forearm fractures. And it's a systematic review. And it's by Amelia Zin Chun Go at AL. And essentially, um, you know, we, we've talked about systematic reviews a lot through the podcast. They've done, you know, a really good systematic review using the standard approach. They've registered in Prospero and all of that thing. 
So the bottom line is, what did they found? So uh, of the you know sort of nearly 1,300 articles they found, they found nine trials which studied 936 patients. Now there are a mix of methods of any anesthesia that were that were mentioned throughout uh, these papers, and these included everything from you know your standard sort of uh, procedural sedation um, or hematoma blocks to intravenous re regional anesthesia so um, and uh, sort of intranasal um, uh, sedation um, using intravenous ketamine. The papers all used a different you know, amount and different doses and things like that, but uh, and unfortunately they weren't able to pull the results into a meta-analysis, but they did highlight some really interesting points from the paper, which were uh, from the studies that they found of what was significant. So the main findings really of this study were intracurricular blocks uh, resulted in better pain outcomes, satisfaction scores and fewer events of hypoxia compared with procedural sedation in, in one study. When they looked at hematoma blocks and sort of nitrous oxide, in these studies they resulted in fewer adverse events, better parent satisfaction and a shorter recovery time compared with procedural sedation. And that again unfortunately was in one study. In a study where they looked at intravenous re uh, regional anesthesia, um, they used lignocaine, which is not something I'm familiar with, versus prilocaine in, in that study. And that's had a reasonable outcome. And finally, um, what is clear is that there are multimodal, multi, uh, multimodal ways to do this. And there really aren't any high-quality RCTs looking at the, the benefits of how to reduce these forearm fractures and um, you know should we be reducing these forearm fractures and there's a lot of work going in to look at that. I think the bottom line is with this systematic review is um, what really surprised me is that hematoma blocks are, are seem to be really well tolerated by children um, which is interesting and um, different to perhaps where I've um, seen it before. Also, intraclavicular blocks, which is something I've never, ever considered to do for a forearm fracture, be it in an adult or a child, um, has got some really positive outcomes. But actually, you know, there is clearly some more work to be done within this area. Yeah, very interesting. So I can't profess to be an expert on manipulating paediatric forearm fractures because um, even when I worked in the, our, our paediatric emergency department, we didn't used to manipulate them in the ED, actually. They used to go to uh, theatre. But uh, I have plenty of experience in adults and uh, plenty of negative experiences with hematoma blocks, <laughs> uh, which, of course, are very controversial. And most emergency physicians will tear their clothes and beat their chests when you mention the possibility of doing a hematoma block. So it's very interesting to note that in this study, they were, they were quite favoured, actually. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I quite like a good hematoma block, actually, both in children and in adults. Um, so I'm a fan of them, but I, I think I'm a rare, rare breed of emergency physician. But um, I think it's really interesting. And I think there's clearly paucity of evidence in this topic, um, which is hugely important because it, you know, 10 to 20 you know 10 to 20 percent of um, presentations to a pediatric emergencies department are fracture related so we need to get good analgesia for these finally um before we wrap up our podcast um, rick just wanted to mention about two of the other papers that we've not had time to cover uh did you want to say a little bit about those uh, rick 
Yeah, just uh, to finish with a couple of stocking fillers for you, uh, ready for Christmas. So, <laughs> so we've got, um, first of all, a paper that I was privileged to be involved with. Uh, so a bit of shameless self-plugging, but actually more than that, I'm going to plug Charlie Reynard, who um, led on this piece, which is how to tell if your clinical prediction model is past its sell-by date. So this is a little opinion piece that we put in just to highlight an issue and get us to think about it. So we use clinical prediction models and decision rules all the time in emergency medicine. The Ottawa ankle rule, the Canadian CT head rule. There are so many of them. Have you ever thought about whether your clinical prediction model might be out of date then? Because they do go out of date. And this is highlighting an issue of calibration drift. We all know that when we when we derive a clinical decision, we've got to validate it to make sure it works in a different population. But the populations change over time. Demographics of our patients change, their comorbidities change, their presentations change. And what can happen is the predictive value of the variables that we use in these decision rules can go down and that will affect the performance of the decision rule. So it was really to highlight an issue that calibration drift is an issue and we need to consider that. And perhaps for those older decision rules that haven't been validated for some time, we need to go back and start thinking about actually, let's check that this is still working in 2022, 2023. So that was that one. The second one I wanted to highlight was a really nice piece uh, reviewing the evidence for the diagnosis of pulmonary embolism. So it's one of uh, a two-part review that we're going to publish in the journal. So there's going to be a sequel to this, but led by John Kafferke and with an expert authorship group, we've got this narrative review uh, talking about everything to do with PE that's relevant to us as emergency physicians. Now, I can't highlight everything in this podcast. You've got to have to go and read it yourself, but there are some really great nuggets to take away. For example, Sarah, classic pleuritic chest pain. It's become synonymous with pulmonary embolism, <laughs> right? Do you know how many patients with uh, PE have classic pleuritic chest pain? Probably not as many as I'm led to believe given my exams recently. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So it's 39.4% of patients oh, wow. have pleuritic chest pain. So it's, uh, it's not that many. Um, and in fact, the, there are symptoms that seem to be more important, like uh, shortness of breath, um, seems to be quite predictive of, of pulmonary embolism. Uh, so there's all sorts of things, pearls of wisdom in here. They, they, they talk you through the prevalence of ECG changes, the classical S1, Q3, T3 change that's 97% specific for PE, but not very sensitive at just 7.1%. And they'll talk you through imaging modalities, which ones we can use, what's the difference between a VQ scan and a VQ SPET, what dimer thresholds should we be using, all sorts of other things. So it's, uh, they'll even cover pregnancy. So it's well worth a look. Wow. Who knew? Who knew that that is? Uh, I'm glad that S1Q1 T3 is not that common. It, it feels as though it should be common given how often it comes up in exams, but uh, clearly it isn't. Anyway, I wanted to wrap up the podcast there. Wanted to wish everyone a happy holidays wherever you're celebrating that in the world and a happy new year. And Rick and I will look forward to joining you in, which is amazing to say, January 2023. Yeah, amazing. So yeah, happy holidays, happy Christmas, happy new year, happy whatever festivity you might celebrate at this time of year. Uh, and we will see you in the new year. Bye-bye for now. Bye.